Web3 with me is a discussion style podcast about the ins and outs of Web 3.0, hosted by Zach French, known as Off Edge in the verse. From crypto to NFTs, DAOs to DeFi, we cover the abstract philosophical promises and the new business models enabled in this new decentralized world. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform or watch the show on YouTube. Thanks and enjoy. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Thanks so much for tuning in to Web3 with me. It is our mission here to educate, and we realize that some basics of Web3, like WTF is a digital wallet, might be helpful for you to know. We will be releasing a series of short videos on YouTube and Reels to help cover these high-level topics. We hope they're useful for us, and feel free to leave us feedback. My guest today is Sean Judge, General Partner at Castle Island Ventures. Sean has been investing since he started working in 2011. He was fortunate to take a wide-lens approach early on in his career and narrowed it over time until he ultimately landed in Web3 early-stage venture. He has partnered with some amazing minds at Castle Island and aspires to build a generational VC firm. He takes us through the mega trends they invest in and why the future for this space is so bright. LFG, baby, let's start vibing. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, Zach. Yeah, I appreciate it. This has been a, a long time coming. One of my, actually my only repeat guest, uh, Giuseppe, introduced me to to you and Ash uh, as his kind of North Stars when it comes to crypto native investing. So I'm excited to to get into it with you. Yeah, happy to be here. Giuseppe's a, a great guy. He and Julian are, are building something pretty special over there at 186. It seems like they just keep a very practical mindset and they're also keeping a nice balance of Web3, non-Web3, like literally 50-50 in terms of time spent uh, in his his portfolio. So I'll be excited to see where that goes. Yeah, likewise. Uh, Well, I usually start these shows with uh, your founding story. Uh, I want to get the audience to get to know who Sean is. So just start wherever you'd like. Sure. So I I grew up in the Boston area um, my whole family is kind of within 50 miles of where I'm sitting right now uh, that's in the U.S., uh, but made my way down to Vanderbilt for college and then started my career um, in New York at Bank of America Merrill Lynch in the financial institutions group doing investment banking. So it's mostly covering banks, fintech companies, specialty finance companies, asset managers. This was like 2011 to 2014. Uh, and from there, I joined a firm called Pomona Capital, which is a multi-billion-dollar secondary private equity uh, firm, and uh, which was a, a super interesting job in that uh, you know I was learning about different businesses every day, and and the other interesting part was learning about different parts of the private equity asset class. So one day looking at a lower middle market buyout company, the next a mega cap, the next uh, day looking at a venture portfolio, growth equity, etc. Uh, really kind of fell in love with the venture and growth asset class, as well as the businesses I was looking at in that space and ended up after a couple of years at Pomona joining a firm called Highland Capital Partners back here in Boston. Um, 
they at the time were, were looking for someone with some fintech experience. And so I ended up kind of leading fintech investing for Highland for about five years. Um, and our strategy there was, was, was really um, what we were calling early growth. So it was businesses with a few million dollars in revenue, 40% plus gross margins, growing well, not a lot of capital into the business. So call it series A through C, 10 to $40 million investments. Um, and, um, you know, back in, in 2017, we started getting all of these pitches uh, for these initial coin offerings, none of which met our investment mandate. Uh, and many of which were, were pretty head scratching. Um, but the interesting thing that caught my eye was that for every, you know, three or four or five that seemed like, man, this is, I just don't get this. They're raising $80 million. It's three people. There's going to be these tokens. I have no idea why any of these are going to accrue value. Um, I don't know what the governance we'd have as investors. Um, just, it didn't, it didn't meet what we were looking for, but for every handful of them, there would be like just jaw dropping talent that would come in front of you. So it might be five kids dropping out of MIT. It might be three people leaving Google as engineers that are starting this thing. And it was enough to say, Hey, there might be something happening here, uh, outside of what we were reading in the media and what we were following just as like purely speculative investors out of the PA buying Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, and so I did a deep dive in the space over six months to say, like, is there something here in this ecosystem that we could invest in? And so I went to every meetup I could find in Boston, New York, San Francisco. I went to every conference I could I could get to and was just trying to absorb as much as I could in the space. Uh, and towards the end of 2017, um, I saw this guy, Matt Walsh, who was at Fidelity, speak on a panel. And he just kind of jumped out as... Um, maybe the most sober-minded individual that I'd met in the space. Um, he was saying things that others weren't um, and had kind of a very differentiated and I'd say contrarian opinion on what was investable at the time. And so ended up grabbing him after his panel and said, let's get lunch and, and connected uh, further. And, and Matt's backstory was, you know, he was, um, he had joined Fidelity in 2014. He had, had been kind of instrumental in what is now Fidelity Digital Asset Services he had moved over to the investing side of the house and was thinking about spinning out to start this thing called Castle Island Ventures. And so I said, you know, I, this is, I've, I've arrived at my conclusion after my deep dive. This guy is the smartest person I've met in the space. He and his partner, Nick, are going to leave. They're, they think there's an opportunity at the pre-seed and seed stage. I don't invest there. I invest at the Series A, B, and C. But the types of things that they were talking about investing were things that I could envision if they should work, we could invest in at Highland. And so I, I, I wrote a personal check into Fund One um, and Matt and Nick moved into my office and, uh, and I moved next door. And um, <laughs> that was the start of Castle Island Ventures. And so fast forward a couple of years from there and I had led the Series A into Coinmetrics, which they had incubated, which is a uh, crypto asset data company selling into you know, some of the largest financial institutions in the world. Uh, today, um, you know, we had done Bitwise together as firms, um, you know, they had done Casa, I did Unchained Capital. And so it was one of these things where I woke up, you know, a, a few years later and, and had having spent, you know, 10, 15, 20% of my time in the space at the time, it was now all of a sudden 95, 100% of my time. <laughs> and, uh, it was nights and weekends and it was, um, one of these things that was far more obvious, I think, to those in my life that. Uh, how are you not in this kind of, you know, with both feet? And so um, I ended up joining Matt, Nick and, and, and our uh, other partner, Ria Batoria, 
back in um, about a year and a half ago uh, as, as thinking about expanding Castle Island strategy beyond just pre-seed and seed stage investing into Series A investing. So we closed our third fund uh, about a year ago, uh, started investing out of that uh, in Q2 of 2022. Um, and, uh, and here we are. Yeah, now we're now we're here. It's interesting. You, it, it's it, is it an interesting path that path that you took because you got you got the exposure to just tradfi at the beginning, and then you got to see what the investment market looked like across all these different sized businesses at different stages in their life cycle. And it's almost like you you could hone in on the one that you felt like you could add the most value to. Uh, spent some time in there, started in fintech, which is uh, a common starting point, I think, for a lot of people that eventually get into crypto, right? Uh, just because of that scratch in, in 2017, 2018 with all these big companies. When when you started to see the talent in those areas, what was keeping those ICOs from being investable? Was it a lack of experience or like, why, why were they choosing that path to begin with? And then like, what was keeping it from being investable at that point in time or most of it from being investable? Well, look, there, there were plenty of people that invested during that time into some of these projects and did really well. And there's a bunch of those projects that are still around today and have vibrant ecosystems. Um, it was really more from like our investment mandate at the firm that I was at, which was <laughs> we were trying to stay really focused and say, like, we're only going to look at businesses that have like kind of meet this criteria that have a few million dollars in revenue that have a certain gross margin profile. Um, and you know, you'd have five people walk in and say, here's our white paper, you know, we're raising $80 million uh, <clears throat> and it's gonna close next week. And so that that just didn't really meet what we told our investors we'd do and what we, you know, enjoyed doing. And um, and so look, but but again, look, like there were plenty of things during that time period that made investors a lot of money that again are, are still around today. It just yeah. at the time wasn't the type of thing that we wanted to invest in there. And what it attracted me to what Matt and Nick were thinking about was they were looking at a lot of the infrastructure and saying like, what fundamentally has to exist uh, if any of these things end up working. And so like, you're gonna need to have data companies, like there will be custodians, like there's gonna be exchanges where people can exchange these things. So it was more of just some of the kind of picks and shovels plays where I looked at and said, hey, these look like businesses that We'll have a few million dollars in revenue. We'll have a certain gross margin profile. Uh, won't require a tremendous amount of capital to scale. Um, so that was kind of what attracted to me them initially. I, lo I love that. I mean, that's that's something that Giuseppe and I have discussed at length. I think that is going to be necessary to do this. I'm seeing. I, I looked over your your um, your article from the the uh, New Year's Eve, um, and where you're going through all of this big institutional adoption. Um, just to have an aggregate and understand like all these different institutions that are spending so much time in this space. I've got a friend over at NASDAQ, um, saw the article that they just published about, you know, their custodial services, um, they're getting buy-in stuff like that, which is, which is awesome. Um, so now you are, at, you've been at Castle Island for a year and a half, you said. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously the, 2022 was crazy. I don't, we don't need to, uh, to, to dwell on that too much. Um, what has you excited about 2023, uh, this year? Do you feel like, uh, we're in a good place to push forward? What, what has you excited? What has you worried? Yeah. I mean, look, there's, um, 
there's a lot to be excited about from from where we sit. I think um, some of the areas where we've been banging a drum for a few years around, you're starting to see startups emerge. So in the proof, proof of reserve space, there's a lot of activity right now. My partner, Nick, has been kind of at the forefront of that, um, looking for exchanges specifically to, to, to kind of go forward with the proof of reserves. And we're starting to see some things in that ecosystem. I think the other area where we've been, um, you know, back in, I think, 2018 or 19, Matt and Nick wrote a white paper on stable coins. I think at the time there was only about $8 billion in circulation. There's $150 billion today. I, I think there's more applications kind of around that that will start to emerge. I think from like a venture investor like hat, like that's like separate from what are the types of things that are interesting. Um you know, there was, it looked like a really easy place to make money for folks that were entering the industry over the last, call it, year and a half, two years, where people were saying, hey, yeah, you know what, I will leave my, you know, high paying job at XYZ company um, because I can go raise money from whoever at a really high valuation and then you just get more money. And it's just, uh, it, it looked really easy. And, and like to put that, you know, some numbers around that in, in 2019 and 2020 combined, there was only 555 seed and series A deals in, in this industry. And in Q1 of last year, uh, we were at like a 1400 annualized deals. Wow. <laughs> um, so people were just entering in droves and there was just a tremendous amount to look at. And there was a lot of really talented people in the space. Um, What's really exciting now, because it's it's slowed down, as you can imagine, because it's 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 you're you're less likely to leave a secure job in this market and and, and enter raising capital into a market where things have changed dramatically. Um, but the people that are leaving are like that's what's super exciting is that you'll have an incredibly talented person that has a very secure job, uh, but they just can't quit this idea. And they're so, they have such conviction that they are going to leave their job at Stripe or they are going to leave their job at Facebook and, or at Goldman Sachs. And they're coming into the space saying, I have to do this because it's going to exist and I'm going to be the one to go build it. And so there's a, there's a quality element where you, you are meeting with people that have really great experience um, that are both, you know, have experience maybe in traditional technology or traditional financial services, but also have crypto experience which again, didn't really exist five years ago where you had like the blend of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what, that's, what's like exciting now. It's just, you're meeting with these people that they're not looking at the prices. Um, and they're saying, I'm just going to go ahead and build this. I don't care what it takes. And, um, I'm going to go raise, I'm going to figure out a way to raise capital for this. I'm going to hire a team. And those are the types of people you want to be in business with for the next decade. Yeah, for sure. That's, um, you know, it's, it's become the cliche that bears are for building, right? Um, yeah. But it's reassuring to hear that you're still seeing talented individuals leaving comfortable jobs at large institutions to go and start an idea just because they feel like if they don't, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna, they got FOMO, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're gonna, they're gonna miss out a little bit. Um, so I guess. You know, when you're thinking about uh, the flows of capital, when you're talking to your portfolio companies and, you know, they may be either panicking on whether or not they're going to get another check. They may be thinking about all of this bad news that's happening around the market and how it might affect their business. Um, how, how does Castle Island approach that? And what are you, how are you reassuring them and how are you preparing them for maybe a more frugal future, uh, at least in the near term? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a great question. It's it's something that we've been very actively doing since uh, kicking off. You know, our latest fund is, you know, if you're raising capital in, in July or August, um, you know, traditionally you're raising at a seed or a Series A. You're thinking about kind of an eighteen to twenty four months of runway and. You know, given what the market looks like, we're just saying, hey, expect things to take longer, expect things to be more expensive and figure out a way to kind of extend that to 30, 36 months. Um, part of that is just driven by and we, we saw this back in 2017 and 18. So in that ICO boom, by the way, like all these generalist firms kind of poured in pretty late and then they disappeared. And they came in pretty aggressively in this most recent kind of bubble. Um and where they were coming in was kind of in this series B, C, D stage where traditionally these firms were coming in. Like historically, if you look at some of these generalist firms, they, they're series A investors and they were coming in a little bit later. And part of that is they're trying to figure out how to get action on the space. And it's easier to come in at a series B or C because you can look at an income statement and just say, hey, this thing's actually really working regardless of what industry it's in. Like I can look at the, I can look at an income statement and say this thing is working. And so I'll pay up and put more money in at a series B or C. And I think a lot of that capital's gone for the time being. Um, and so that's where you're, you're just saying, Hey, like, let's get to 2025 if we have to. And the good news is, is look, like if the market bounces back in a big way in the middle of this year, you can react, you can start to spend more aggressively. You can go out and raise additional capital, but you want to be able to be prepared that this could be you know, a, a two, two and a half year bear market, which we've seen in the past. So it's, it's the, the good news for companies that have raised in the last year is that if they had plans to, to triple their, their, their uh, employee count, um, a lot of them didn't get the opportunity to even do that yet. Um, you know, they were starting to hire and it's like, Hey, maybe, maybe you only grow your team by 75% instead of three X in a year. Interesting. So it's almost like they, they had the mandate to grow like crazy, but then when things started to slow down, they didn't even get a chance to fulfill it. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and then the ones like, that had raised capital the year prior are, are faced with the decision of like, okay, it's, it's time to maybe, you know, reduce the team size by X percent to kind of give us the runway to, 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 to kind of survive through this bear market. Where, where are you seeing in terms of uh, like the um, like management level where like when you're working with these, you know, Web3 crypto companies, um, where, where are you seeing an overemphasis and focus or maybe misguided? Right. Uh, and where are you seeing uh, a place where they should be focusing more time on, if anywhere? It, it kind of depends on where you're selling into today. So there's still like a tremendous amount of appetite amongst these brands. I think I highlighted that in the, the medium post that you, you had mentioned where you have the Nikes and Pradas and Gucci's and Tiffany's of the world that are leaning into the, the NFT space aggressively. And so um, does it make sense to have a bigger focus in sales and marketing if you're selling any product or service into that space? Today it does. If you're uh, an AUM based or um, if you are a uh, transaction based revenue business, um, you know, you're clipping off a lower number today, right? And there's less volume. And so uh, it, it probably makes sense to focus more on kind of product and technology as opposed to uh, sales and marketing at this point. Got you. So it's like if, if it is, it's almost like if it's a consumer brand, 
right, then you could almost generalize it in that in that way and say that you know at, you should be spending more on the S and M side. Um, but when it comes to um, the the B two B or the nuts and bolts of these consumer brands, right, the the picks and shovels, as you said earlier, um, they should just be building, right? They should be focused on building a better product um, and and building, I guess, for for a, hopefully a brighter future, right? Yeah, you want. I mean, ultimately, like if it, it depends on where you're selling into, but um, it's um, you know, if you're selling into customers that are, are experiencing pain right now, like crypto native customers, um, you know, how do you make your product as sticky as possible so that they can't live without you? And that would be like investing in product and technology. Mm-hmm. What what role does decentralization play uh, when you're talking to your portfolio companies or potential portfolio companies? You know, it, it, uh, we, we do some token investing. And so obviously if, if we're looking at an opportunity, it's like, what is the path to decentralization? You know, the vast majority of what we do as a firm is investing, you know, equity. We look like a traditional venture capital firm investing in equity and startups catering to the industry. So it's, it's less relevant, right? So if we're investing into a company like Eagle Brook Advisors, which I'm on the board of, they're selling into the wealth management industry. Um, you know, do people at that firm and do do we at Castle Island have views on, you know, why de- decentralization is a good thing for these networks? Absolutely. But our focus when we're investing in a business like that is how do you sell effectively into the RAA channel? You know, how do you provide a really superior product to uh, to these end clients to um, kind of allocate to the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So it's, it's less of a focus on that lens. I think individually we kind of have a perspective around why decentralization matters. And ultimately those are the tidal waves that we're investing behind. So, you know, what what we're investing in these picks and shovels businesses, but it's behind three mega trends, right? It's one, you have these new monetary networks that are being built Two, you have, you know, decentralized finance is, is a thing. We're democratizing access to financial services and products. Three, you know, people have have named it Web3. You know, we were calling decentralized internet architectures. It's really like sovereignty over your data. And we would bucket everything that happens with NFTs there. <laughs> Those three megatrends are all important to have. You know, decentralization is at its core, right? You're removing um, gatekeepers and you're allowing individuals to, to, to own these things outright. Where we're investing is saying like, who, you know, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's Ethereum as the new monetary network, whether it's something else as a new store of value, kind of, you know, be unemotional about it. What needs to exist? Like you need to have custodians, you need to have exchanges, you need to have data and analytics, you need to have compliance software. And that's where we're good at investing is into those things. So you see, I guess, if I, if I could summarize the decentralization is driving a lot of the mega trends, but it's not necessarily like a, a mandate or a goal that you set with your companies. Let's find out a way to decentralize unless it actually makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because we think there'll be, there'll be like all sorts of businesses that are helping power this stuff. And I, you know, I think that like if we're investing in something that is considering having a token at some point, I think central to the conversation is, you know, what does a token launch look like and, and how do you actually become truly decentralized? And those are, that's kind of like a, uh, a you know, a, a separate conversation around like the merits of the people, the market and the product opportunity. Yeah. 
How do you, th- I guess when you, when you are investing in some of these more picks and shovels brands, um, how are or, or companies, how do you think about brand? Right. Um, I know that a, a brand and a consumer company is everything, right. Um, to, to empathize with, with your consumers, to get them to get your product. Is that, is that a discussion or is it more about just the fundamentals of running a, a good company and building a good product? I mean, I think, Brand is always incredibly important. Um, it, it's it's around the brand building that you're doing over time and what it takes to get there. But when you're investing at you know the pre-seed or seed, it's typically something that's on the come, right? At the Series A, where you know you're trying to understand is their product market fit here. Part of understanding that product market fit, speaking to customers, speaking to prospective customers, you're evaluating not only the merits of the product. Um, the pricing, the competition, but you're also gleaning, you know, what is the brand reputation? What is it like to work with these people? What is, what do they stand for? Um, and, and so you kind of glean that, you know, it's through that process. But, um, you know, I think those are things that typically come almost even a bit later um, yeah. because at the pre-seed and seed, it's, Hey, there's three of us. We have this really great idea. Uh, here's the market opportunity. Uh, here's the brand we'd like to, we think we could build in the space, but it's, um, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't happened yet oftentimes. Right. So it seems like when, when they come to you, it's, it's, it's a, it's on the roadmap, if you will, yeah. to spend some more, some more time and brand and, and all that. What, um, how do you, how do you visualize, uh, your, your portfolio, I, I, is it, is there like a, a matrix or something to, as to like where you are focused in the, in the crypto industry? How do you break it down? Uh, is there certain areas where, I mean, I don't know if you focus at all on consumer from what we've talked about, but um, is there certain areas that you stay away from? I think we probably, like, if you look at our first, second, and, and now kind of our third fund, um, you know, his, like in the first fund, a lot of it was financial market infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So companies like Talos and Coinmetrics, um, you know, companies in the asset management space like Bitwise, um, you know, and fund two is we were kind of leaning more into DeFi and, and NFT infrastructure. And I think it, it kind of makes sense because those three buckets that I talked about, new monetary networks being built, decentralized finance and um, you know, web three, they're all at various stages, right? So like the new monetary, like the monetary network side, um, there has been a lot built around custody. There has been a lot built around exchanges. Um, we still see huge opportunity there, right? Like we would, you know, we would say that there will be new exchanges that are going to get built and they're going to look a lot different than the exchanges that exist today. So there's investable stuff there at the pre-seed seed and series a, but a lot of the things that have been built in this industry, uh, have already been built there, right? There are there are a number of different custodians. There's a bunch of custodians that are that are being built right now that are really interesting, and we think will will gain market share over time. On the DeFi side, it's it's a little bit more mature, and then I'd say like the earliest stage is, is this kind of Web three bucket where it's really gotten hot over the last couple of years, and you know there's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built to make it easier and to obfuscate kind of these public blockchains to end consumers, and so we see like at the pre-seed and seed, a lot of really interesting things in those those last two buckets. Um, and the more mature stuff kind of at the Series A or beyond is is kind of things that have already been built over the last, you know, five, six, seven years. Yeah, it seems uh, when you said that uh, exchanges will look different, what, what exactly did you mean? 
my partner Matt's got this thesis, and it's uh, and I think it's right. And uh, we've we've talked about it a lot internally. In that, um, you know, given given everything that's gone on last year, um, you know, I th- we think that you can start to see exchanges that actually aren't going to custody assets that will will use a third party custodian to do so. And so, uh, and we think that will actually enable a lot more institutional capital to come into the space. Because if you're a large institution, right, and you look at what happened with FTX, you're saying like, well, this is another reason not to enter the space. But it's like, well, there are custodians. So it's like, well, what if I want to trade? I have to put assets on the exchange to, to trade. So figuring out that problem, um, I think, is a huge opportunity, both not just for institutions, but for obviously retail as well, which was severely impacted by the FTX fiasco. Do you, do you, do you or Matt think that that will be a... Um... A, a startup opportunity. Yeah, I assume. Yeah, okay, yeah so there are startups like in the space. Okay. There are startups already in the space that are that are kicking the tires on this stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, there will be there will be companies that are going to go after this. Interesting. So you don't have like you think when I think custody of assets, I think like large institutions with a track record. And uh, but at the end of the day, I guess it's it comes down to uh, the tech uh, and the people building it. Um, I don't know. I just I, I imagine like a, a Nasdaq or a Nice or a, um, some of these larger companies that are custodying assets on exchanges um, coming in and just building it. But maybe that's not I think the case. they will. But you know, it's um, they they typically move a little bit slower than startups, and so that's that's you know that's the opportunity in venture capital. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a, the the amazing thing, and that was part of the the kind of blog post I put together is that. In one of the most painful years of crypto ever, if not the most painful, you still had all of these really great things that happened. Uh, and there's a little bit of irony in that, like, you know, you have you have you have this uh, social experiment that was like, you know what, we're going to take control over our money. We're going to take control over our data. We're going to take control over our financial services. And and yet the institutions might clean up here pretty well in the next couple of years. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm joking a little bit and that I, I think there's a tremendous amount of runway and opportunity for, for startups, but uh, these folks are, are deploying resources um, and they're um, it doesn't appear like they're slowing down. No, it does not. I mean, it, there's almost a new headline every week on both, on, on both sides, on the, on the consumer <laughs> side and on the institutional side. So it's, it's really interesting to follow. Um, where do you see the the future of of decentralized finance? Um, I know that a lot of the uh, you know Web three uh, maxis and and crypto maxis have used this kind of fiasco that's happened with FTX and the contagion uh, around it as a way to prove that you know CFI is not the way to go. I know that custodying assets is one way to solve that, which we already talked about, but. What is what what is the future of decentralized finance? Do you think that there is a way that we can kind of build it out to uh, empower people to own their own assets without these uh, without centralized institutions? I do. I think that's where there's like a ton of um, really exciting opportunities. Is is kind of like how do you you know right now? I always tell people this that are, are outside the industry that, that are saying, I don't really understand how it works. And it's like, hey, just put $100 into a wallet and I'll show you how to do it and go interact with Aave. 
and you'll start to see the power of these things. And you, you, your, your mind starts to wander as, or as to where this can go, like go on Uniswap and, and swap an asset and you're, and you can start to see like how powerful this could be. I think like what needs to happen is you need to build thing. You need to build tools to make it easy for, you know, your grandmother to, uh, instead of opening up a CD at her bank to, uh, to be able to, to access these things in a decentralized way. And that is, you know, and a part of that is, is what I talked about earlier, which is like, how do you obfuscate some of the, the blockchain stuff behind it and make it just really easy for people to use. But I think fundamentally, if you look at, you know, every financial product and service that exists in the centralized traditional finance space, there are projects that are going after each single one in a decentralized way. Um, and so that that's exciting. It'll, it'll take time to figure out, you know, which are better than others and why. And, um, and I think a lot of the like consumer adoption will increase as these tools exist to make it easy for anybody to enter the space and say like, okay, I, I, I understand what this is and, and I can, uh, I'm going to go, take out a loan or I'm going to go put this into a savings account. Yeah. I don't know if I'm oversimplifying it, but it seems like a lot of this is just going to rely on the viability of stable coins in the long term, because there's got to be a way to get the money on chain, regardless of which of the characteristics of finance you are decentralizing with DeFi. Yeah. And look like the, the uh, trains left the station on the stablecoin front, like it's proven as like probably the the biggest, the, the like the most impactful killer application that exists on public blockchains. Um, but we don't think that like what exists today, we think like Circle is a fantastic company. We think some of the other projects in the, in the space are, are doing some interesting things. There's a lot of startup activity there as well though. Uh, yeah. And hopefully, like you start to see a little bit more regulatory clarity in the next year around stable coins. And I think that will kind of usher in another wave. Um, and th look, there's all these like different, you know, use cases here. One is just like being able to settle kind of 24 seven. One is like to be able to do these things in a peer to peer way, um, in an auditable way. Um, I think, you know, the thing that gets a lot of folks excited as well is, being able to save in US dollars living in a country that is experiencing, you know, incredibly high inflation. And some of these things are like what people get really excited about working in crypto. And, and then you have critics that say, Hey, that's really not happening. Um, and I'd like to push back just on that. If you look at like the Chainalysis crypto adoption index, the top 10 countries that are, um, are, are kind of in crypto, you know, obviously they have how it's weighted. Um, it's, it, it's eye opening. It's pretty surprising. These are places that, um, you know, are experiencing pretty high inflation. And so if like you're living in, in a place where, you know, you're inflating at, at 50, 60% a year, um, you know, holding something like a U.S. dollar is, um, for the first time just with your cell phone and an internet connection, um, that never was, you, you were never able to do that, right? You couldn't just like go to the US and open up a bank account and you can now do that with this technology. Um, and I think like, that's a really, if you're an American, that's a really great thing. That's a very pro-American story. Like the proliferation of US dollars globally is a good thing for America. Um, and I think politicians are starting to see that, but you know, on the left and the right, which is great because it's not, it should not be a partisan issue. 
Um, so those are, I don't know, I was rambling a bit there, but those are some of the things that like get us pretty excited. One of the things I've learned doing this, uh, is rambles tend to be the best insights <laughs> actually. Um, I have two follow-up questions. One is when someone is doing a startup, um, stable coin, like what is their competitive advantage if you know, like w when they're pitching it, right? Uh, is it, is it based on markets what, that they're going to serve in terms of like emerging markets, like you were alluding to, um, how, how does someone go about that? And then I guess as a follow-up question, what role do CBDCs play in this? And have you looked into that versus these stable coins and how it might affect the crypto market? I'd say that like generally we're pretty anti CBDCs, uh, to hit the second part of the question there first. Um, and I think, hopefully we'll avoid a future that um that looks like a world full of cbdc's which is just like a way to track you know small transactions for everybody uh within whichever jurisdiction that you're living in um without revealing some startups that we're looking at there are some pretty interesting uh you know stablecoin type startups that are looking at gaps in the market and saying like um, we could cater to this type of client with, uh, this type of stable coin, whether it's, um, uh, you know, in a regulated fashion, like a circle, right. Or, um, you know, people, obviously people in the space, Tether still exists largely because, you know, it's, it's kind of outside the system and there's some questions around, around that, but yeah, I, I I'm going to, I'm going to hesitate to reveal too much until, um, we move forward with the startup. <laughs> <laughs> we found the secret spot. Yeah. Uh, Just publish this in a few weeks. Yeah, it, it, it will be actually. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, for as my Gen Z uh, mentors would say, um, you know, spill the tea, Sean. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like catering to new, I mean, if we could generalize here, right? Uh, catering to new types of clients that may not have access to stable coins as they exist today is an opportunity. Uh, offering reassurances and security around those stable coins uh, to have maybe certain institutional or higher wealth individuals to feel more comfortable uh, holding a cryptocurrency, if you will. Um, that, that those general area yeah. might be where, where one would focus. Um, I don't know if right. there's anything you want to add there, but uh, we, right. we can also leave that topic. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting space for me because I feel like since the, since my beginning in the space, stable coins have been a very big onboarding metric for uh, how much crypto adoption there is. The chain analysis report is a, is a great way to look at crypto adoption as well. Actually, uh, next week, uh, we're recording this in, in January 11th, but next week I'll, I'll be releasing my interview with the CMO from Chainalysis, which was, oh, one awesome. of my, it was one of my more fun episodes, man. I mean, I just, I love what they're doing. I feel like we need that to provide the legitimization of, of the space. It's kind of like one of those interesting businesses where like the maxis are like, you're the worst thing that could ever happen to this. You're, you know, invading our privacy by doing this, but the, the 
the mainstream realizes that you need to have protections in place and on-chain analysis like that uh, in order for this to sustain itself in the long term. We aren't just going to have complete anarchy and <laughs> decentralize everything right away. Yeah, and there's, there's actually some startups that we've been meeting with that are going after um, kind of in that stablecoin space, I'd say, like... Um, they're going after privacy solutions that would be KYC'd, right? So could you have something that sits in your wallet that verifies that, Zach, you have been KYC'd, but your identity remains anonymous on chain? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's when we get into like ZKs and, yeah. and all that fun stuff. Because, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, this is a, a very rudimentary analogy, but like if you think about when you go to a bar or to buy some alcohol, Right. There's no reason that you need to share all of the information on your ID to get that. You just need something to verify that you are 21 or whatever the drinking is, wherever you're buying this. Right. Yeah. Um, so or, uh, or when you're getting a mortgage, you don't need to release like anything you've ever bought, your tax returns for three or four years. <laughs> like it's just such uh, an invasive process. And then you just hope that whatever cloud provider they're working with isn't hacked. Are you are you currently looking at or have an opinion on um, any type of blockchain based businesses for uh, real estate? We have a uh, stealth stage company in the space um, that we've invested in uh, this year. Uh, it's one of our larger investments, so can't can't speak to it yet. But we'll certainly uh, send it your way once uh, we go live. But yeah, that's a super interesting area for us. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, that was. I wouldn't say I was introduced through NFTs, but um, early on in 2022, uh, the first Web3 crypto conference I ever went to was one put on by Proppy uh, down in Miami. Um, and it's interesting, man. I mean, they are pretty much having to do double the legwork until people trust the blockchain as like a system of record for these deeds and mortgages and what have you. Um, but they're able, I mean, we, we know the people that understand how blockchain works, understand that as in terms of, of that side of it, when it comes to governments, keeping a system of record around titles and, and deeds and what have you, like, it's just a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I could see that, see that blowing up. We just need more adoption. Um, what about enterprise blockchain? Um, I feel like it had a moment at the beginning. Um, and, and at the beginning, I mean, right when right post Ethereum coming out 2015, 16, 17. Uh, but nobody knew what the hell a blockchain was then. Uh, and now that people know what blockchain is, what distributed ledger technology is, I feel like there's a huge revival uh, in the enterprise blockchain space. What, about, what are you guys seeing? Yeah, we're we, we stay away from it. I mean, we're, we're pretty clear on our website that about why we think public blockchains uh, are impactful in society. And I think that, um, you know, we use the word public uh, instead of private, which would would be these enterprise blockchains pretty intentionally. Um, there were, uh, to your to your point, there was a number of large financial institutions uh, and uh, an enterprise just broadly that looked at these private blockchain solutions back kind of in 2017, 18. And uh, from our understanding, none of them ended up really working. I think like which would align with our thesis around why public blockchains matter and why private blockchains are kind of a clunky system um, where you could kind of build some other technology that would, and some kind of a centralized database that would, that would be pr probably more effective. 
uh, cost effective as well as uh, faster to use. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess uh, that it, it brings up a good point where, you know, not everything is going to be solvable by the blockchain. Um, I just think about like the identity layer. And I mean, I guess in a sense, some of that could be public, but obviously you, you don't want, you know, everything about you on a public blockchain readable. Um, so I just, I yeah, know, it's that. Yeah, that's part of the identity space is super interesting, right? I mean, like the way the way that things exist today um, with limited privacy, um, you know, when you're interacting with an application and you connect your wallet, um, should that be like most of your, you know, crypto asset exposure? You're, you're essentially, you know, revealing all of your financial information to to this application, which is like pretty pretty goofy, right? Like that, that, that wouldn't exist. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't interact with, um, you know, Twitter or Facebook and say like, by the way, like, here's, here's my bank account, my brokerage, and here's all my financial information <laughs> just to, just to access the application. And so there's, uh, some pretty interesting startups that are kind of trying to figure out ways to tackle that both just kind of on the privacy side, as well as like other digital identity solutions. Yeah, that's I just think about the integration that Twitter built with people's wallets. And, you know, just by virtue of that integration, they have all your wallet data, right? Yeah, if they're doing anything with it. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if they were. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, like, to to display a picture and prove that you own it. Why do they need <laughs> to know all the ways that you, you got the thing? Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the, one, the one area we have not touched on a lot uh, in your in your big three mega trends is is the consumer area. Um, is there anything specific that that has you excited for 2023 during this, you know, uh, skim in terms of capital in, uh, injections uh, and building phase? Um, is it mostly around catering to some of these larger brands entering the space or is there certain business models that are unique, uh, in the space that you have your eye on in 2023? Definitely. Um, we, uh, we invested in a company called try your best, um, that I'm, I'm on the board of, and they are working with, um, some direct consumer companies right now as, as well as like underway with some pretty large enterprises to launch with. Uh, and they're providing kind of the wallet infrastructure for these brands to launch, um, NFTs or tokens, whichever they, they want to launch. Uh, they're calling kind of them collectibles for their power users. So if you're a brand right now and you're trying to figure out who are my power users, you're searching Instagram hashtags for who is, is talking about your brand, or you're looking on Reddit to say like, which forum here is has XYZ brand and what are they saying about my product and service? What 2IB enables is kind of one platform, almost almost like a new loyalty program for these brands to offer a collectible that gives these consumers access to something. It might be an in real life event um, and uh, it, it might be tokens to get a discount at checkout. Um, and these power users can all kind of communicate then with the brand. The brand can say, hey, do you want the red shoelaces or the green shoelaces for the for the shoe in the summer? And you click green and you get five more tokens that you can use or gives you access to something else. Uh, so it's kind of, it's it's obfuscating a little bit like some of the uh, vernacular around, you know, it looks more like collectibles, 
but this is like a forum for these power users to communicate with each other and for these brands to bypass, call it Reddit or Facebook or Instagram and kind of connect more deeply with their power users. Um, and if you think about what's gone on with kind of direct consumer brands specifically, but I think all brands are facing this is that customer acquisition costs have just been going up, right? Facebook and Google have all of the market share, they can kind of charge whatever. <clears throat> and so that long, like lifetime value to customer acquisition cost equation that these brands are trying to solve for <clears throat> the CAC side, if that's going up, it's like, how do you increase lifetime value? Well, you need higher retention. How do you increase retention? You need to engage further with your, with your users. And so this is a new way for brands to kind of connect more deeply. And that's an area where we're seeing like a tremendous amount of inbound um, from some of the largest brands in the world saying, Hey, we get it. We, we want to figure it out. And, you know, the proof is in kind of, again, the blog that I posted, you have Starbucks and Nike and Gucci and Prada. And I mean, don't forget some BMW of the more iconic and brands. Porsche and yeah. <laughs> they're all coming. They're out. all trying to figure it out because yeah. they see the power of it. Um, and I think they see the spend that these individuals have online and this brand affinity that they have, whether it's with the board ape or whichever community you may be in, um, that people have this real connection, um, both, you know, trying to engage with crypto users, but trying to engage with just their regular power users that maybe aren't in crypto. And so this is a way for a lot of, you know, people would say normies, but people that are not in the crypto space to yeah, maybe have I their first I mean, wallet. Largely, the mission of the show is to to kind of de debunk and and decrypt the um, the difference between what what it will take to have mainstream adoption and realizing that not everybody gives a shit about having this level of autonomy. Right? Sometimes they just want to engage with their favorite brands in a new way, and and that's what a lot of these companies are doing. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you bring up like the the CAC to LTV. Uh, and, and increasing engagement and reducing or uh, uh, increasing retention. It's like, what what does that number become when, and, and this is not in all cases, but in some cases where the user owns their own data, right? Does it become a clear, crisper number when user generated content because of user owned content? Yeah, I think that the, the CAC side just gets disrupted on who is receiving the money, right? So it's like right now, Facebook and Google largely are capturing that value. And I think the exciting part about things that are being built in you know, Web3 is that if you, you as an individual, if Nike wants to show you an ad, you know, will you reveal your age and your you know, location to Nike? If you reveal it, they'll give you money directly uh, as opposed to Facebook and Google capturing that. So it's... Um, it's fascinating to think about. I, I think we're we're a ways away from that being implemented, but there's plenty of people I think yeah, that are trying to tackle are. that. There's challenge. a lot of good DSO companies, as they call themselves, too. Um, it becomes more like your 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 data becomes more liquid, right? You've got yeah. When and I don't know when it's going to happen, but at, at some point you you have a world. And 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 keeping in mind that this is balanced with the fact that most of this is going to be on public blockchains. Now your personal information may not be um, like your your actual like PII, but um, the the data that is valuable to companies, which I consider 
the blockchain the most powerful data it's intent data right it's what you actually do um that will be available and the fact that you will have be like have the keys to your own castle and you can take it and say hey man uh, i'm gonna i like what your product is doing I'm in your target audience that you're advertising on some other you know, marketplace that probably gets built around this. Um, what's your monthly rate? You know, what's what's the rate if I sign up with you for a year? Right. Like, what, yeah. what does that mean? Is that possible? Is that it might be too idealistic? I don't know. But I think, you know, the, the technology would allow that to happen. The, the question is, will will people be in a position that they want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of my big questions going into this year is that what happens when UGC becomes UOC, but it might not be a question for this year. It might be a question more for uh, 2025. Um, what you know, is like t 20 years in, in Web3 time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's like, look, it's um, all these things are at different stages and like it feels like they're going to happen. It's just, are you too early if you invested in something like that right now? Are you too late? Um, you know, getting the timing rights pretty difficult yeah that is that is or near in the top of the hour i want to be mindful of that um i'd have two traditional closing questions where i close all my interviews um the first one is how do you describe web3 you know the way that the way that i think about it is just leveraging public blockchains to enable individuals to have sovereignty over their money over their data and their ability to to access financial services. So it's really owning the ability to access this versus like a middleman gatekeeping that. Um, that's kind of how I think about it. I, I like the read, write, own kind of definition that people have, but the way that the way that I like view what's happening uh, across, call it crypto or crypto web three or whatever it is, is like people are leveraging public blockchains to kind of take back control over their money, their data, and their financial services. I think that'll evolve though. Like I think like two years from now, you know, you'll have kind of new things that get built and, um, and, uh, and, and I think that definition will kind of expand a bit. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have, I, as I've got it in my title, uh, <laughs> I kind of have to really focus on that. I obviously ask it during every interview and like the more I, I think about it, the more I think about it abstractly, uh, as, as you can, which is, it is the third iteration of the web. Uh, it happened to be closely, closely linked to blockchain technology and the proliferation of that technology. But if we're talking about the third iteration of the web, I don't think it's exclusive to blockchain, right? I think it, it that ownership uh, is furthered by other technology like AI as well. Um, so I'd be interested to see how it expands. I know now it's like a bad word. I know Ryan Salkas and his Masari reports like back to crypto in 2023. Uh, let's get rid of it. But yeah, no, I appreciate the definition. The read, write, own, whenever I get it, I always ask like, can you go a little bit deeper for me? Uh, <laughs> anyways, um, the last question is forward looking. Um, where do you see yourself and in the industry writ large in uh, six to 12 months? And then where do you see yourself in the industry in five to 10 years? And feel free to be as audacious as you want. That is meant to be a fun question. Yeah, I mean, in the next um, in the next six to 12 months, I think like big focus for me is, you know, being heads down, helping portfolio companies hire, helping them find customers. Uh, making sure they can withstand, you know, a pullback in the capital markets within the space. I think looking at new opportunities, you're looking for those rare founders that, you know, make the hair stand up on your arm when they're telling you a story and 
about what they're going to build and, and, and seeing if there's a way to partner should everything else make sense. Should the, you know, the way we evaluate everything is people, market, product, and then the deal. And so you kind of have to check a box on all, on all of those. Um, as I mentioned to you, like some of the areas that we're pretty excited about is kind of around proof of reserve, some of these real world assets, use cases, whether it's stable coins or real estate that we had kind of chatted on briefly. Um, and then in the next five to 10 years, I mean, look, like I think um, I joined uh, Matt, Nick and Rhea because our view is that there will be generational venture capital firms built off of this technology, just like there was off the internet. And I didn't want to kind of, you know, this to me is the, the last stop on my career. Like I want to be at Castle Island for the next 40 years uh, building that. And, and that was something that was very much aligned with Matt, Nick and Rhea when I joined. And so we're kind of, everything we do is intentional around like, what do we look like, you know, not 10 years from now, but 20 years from now. That may sound a little crazy, but um, that's our view is, is we think there's, there are some awesome venture capital firms that were built in the mid nineties, in the early two thousands, you know, a decade ago. Um, and our view is like, how do we, how do we do that? You know, how do we, how are we around 30, 40 years from now? And what do we look like then? And what can we do now to kind of, put ourselves in the, in the best chance to get there. You heard it here, folks. They're going to unseat Sequoia in 20 years. <laughs> Your words, not mine. <laughs> uh, any big audacious uh, predictions for, for the industry? Um, I think we're going to see some people go to jail. I think, uh, <laughs> I think, please, <laughs> I think that's going to happen. Um, and I think that we'll, we'll see, we'll actually finally, see some, uh, we'll get some regulatory clarity on the spot market, on stable coins. I think if you kind of use Enron as a proxy to, to FTX, you had, um, you had a lot of bipartisan uh, regulation that came out shortly thereafter. And, and so my prediction is that um, this is enough of a catalyst for both the right and the left to come together and say, um, let, let's, let's figure out um, you know, who has control over the spot market what what do we uh how do we want to regulate uh stable coins and um and so it should be a uh, it should be an interesting year down at dc on that front yeah very interesting and they have to come together right with the house and the and senate split so we'll see what happens thanks so yeah. much for coming on sean I, I really enjoyed this thanks for having me zach thanks for tuning in to web3 with me if you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French underscore.